organizers who pre-created this wonderful conference. Uh, I'm really honored to be here today. Um, today, I'm going to talk about pre-modern Korean books and their functions in the life of Confucian scholars. Um, if you have come across any version of the history of Korean books, this historiography must have been characterized by a series of breakthroughs in printing technology. The world's oldest existing xylographic imprints produced in the early 8th century was discovered in 1966 in southeastern Korea. Although nationalist historians from both Korea and China still debate over its provenance, this discovery places Korea as the outlier in global print culture. Over 80,000 woodblocks of Buddhist Tripitaka were carved twice on the state initiative, firstly during the Khitan invasion at the turn of the 11th century, and later during the Mongol invasion in the 13th century. The state authority marshaled manpower and material resources during the emergency of war in expectation of invoking Buddha's power to repel foreign invaders. Tochikchi, the anthology of great Buddhist Zen teachings published in 1377, is the world's oldest existing book printed with metal movable type, which was even earlier than Gutenberg by several decades. Numerous records about the improvement in printing fill the official history of Joseon, the last dynasty of Korea, which spanned from 1392 to 1910. All these stories shape the modern perceptions about pre-modern Korean books. The collections of the Gyujanggak Library and the Changsogak Library, the, the two former royal libraries of Joseon, more or less match this historiography. This image is one of the Changsoga collections, the annotations on the Analects of Confucius printed using metal movable types in 1793. The page filled with exquisite font renderings confirms the advanced printing technologies of this period. The annals of the Joseon Dynasty, which is the daily records of the royal court, were mostly printed using wooden movable types. Both the Confucian classics and official histories in this way benefited from the advanced printing technologies. The books circulated in the society and studied by individual scholars, however, were predominantly in manuscript forms hand copied by readers themselves. Then, how can we explain this gap between the advancement in printing technologies and the pervasiveness of manuscript forms in actual book culture? There are several factors that made the wide dissemination of printed books discouraged in pre-modern Korea. First, the production and dissemination of books had maintained close relationship with the control over society by the state authority. As the state implemented rigid confusion program during the Joseon dynasty, its printing brew dominated the book production geared toward the inculcation of confusion social norms. Books printed by the central authorities were sent to the government offices in the eight provinces. In case of books that the government had deemed worthy of white dissemination, a metal type printed copy was taken apart so that provincial printers could affix loose pages on, onto printing blocks to carve and reprint them. Because the government prohibited the establishment of bookstores in order to govern the nature of knowledge circulated in the society, these regionally produced books were mostly distributed to local state schools and local academies. These books were circulated among provincial scholars who hand copied them for their own personal collections. In this way, the book production led by the state involved multimedia and multi-site production processes. Second, we need to consider to what extent the advanced printing technologies could facilitate mass production of text in pre-modern Korea. If the purpose was to mass produce and disseminate the books to readers across the country, why didn't the central government simply increase print runs in the printing room 
instead of going through the cumbersome process of sending a printed copy and reprinting it by carving wood blocks. If we take into account the quality of imprints, it becomes even harder to understand because the imprints produced with metal movable types yielded more exquisite pages. Here, I would like to emphasize that printing process using metal movable types was not suitable for mass production of text for the most period of pre-modern Korea. In particular, how to fix types on frame caused technical difficulties. Since the Kami font of 1403 used wax to fix types on the frame, the speed of printing got extremely slow because the wax did not hold types firmly and made it necessary to refix the types after every one or two imprints. The Gyeongja font of 1422 facilitated a solution by designing types in square shapes so that they could be set tightly against one another. Printing with this font, however, only produced about 20 sheets a day. In 1434, the Kabin font was also completed, which was the first fairly usable typeset. The, the Kabin font finally managed to speed up to 40 sheets a day. This kind of documented records about the various attempts to improve metal movable types appear about 100 times in the annals of the Joseon dynasty during the 15th century. However, it had not continued since the 16th century, which partly evinces the prevalence of multimedia multimedial and multi-site production in Korean book culture. <coughs> Nevertheless, movable type printing was still serviceable for printing a small number of copies with a quick turnaround. Once the types were cast, setting types on the frame took much less time and energy than preparing wood, cutting it into blocks, and carving text on them. Moreover, the movable type could be reused for printing other books. Still, wood blocks remained the driving force behind the book production. Although it took longer and required more resources, block printing could promise a larger quantity of copies. Blocks, moreover, housed the text intact in a fixed space. The printed sheets were mere copies that were prone to vanish, whereas the blocks stood for the eternal truth. Because there were almost no bookshops for the most period of Joseon, people would usually ascertain where the printing blocks of particular books were kept. Then, they would send the necessary quantity of paper and payment of labor in order to have the books printed. The whereabouts of printing blocks were recorded in various printing block catalogs. Local gazetteers sometimes have a section titled Printing Blocks in which currently available printing blocks were recorded. Prior to the rise of book markets in the mid-19th century, therefore, people first had to find out what sorts of books had been printed and where the printing blocks were kept. Most commonly, however, readers borrowed books and simply hand-copied them. Although laborious and cumbersome, hand-copying was both cheap and flexible. One could respond quickly to opportunities to borrow a book, requiring no more than personal writing supplies. The culture of scholarship in Confucian tradition and the symbolic connotations that book delivered in it also made the practice of hand-copying books not only viable, but also ideal. Scholars were not simply expected to read and understand the contents of books. They had to repeatedly revisit and embody the moral lessons as their way of life by reading them aloud and memorizing them. Educated elites esteemed the book both as an archive of knowledge and as a prestige commodity. A book was a shrine to be visited with the utmost decorum. In this context, hand copying constituted a valuable scholarly activity for many elite men who had education and skill, but no official duty. 
hand copied books not only represented the time meaningfully spent, more importantly, they attested that the readers embodied Confucian teachings in the physical process of copying text. Intellectual engagement and somatic movement were integrated together in Confucian way of life. In this situation, the manuscript books that, uh, that we encounter in smaller rural libraries radically differ from the printed books that we find in former royal libraries. These books, which had been preserved in the family archives of local elites, do not find their places in the narrative of Korean print culture. This image is the manuscript book that I concerted three years ago when I visited Dongsan Library of Gyeongmyeong University in Daegu, southeastern Korea. I was conducting research for two different projects, one for political activism of non-official rural scholars and the other for the circulation of palindromic poems. I examined this particular book for the transcription of circulars and joint petitions. Intriguingly, the cover page included the ti uh, two titles, one of which did not appear in the library catalog, Mungyeonno, the record of what I heard and saw. As I browsed the book, unexpectedly, I stumbled upon a piece of palindromic poem on the left image, right next to a, transition, a transcription of a joint memorial presented to the king on the right image. Once you turn the page, you will see the non-linear rendering of the palindrome in the shape of woven cloth. What follows this is, again, the transcription of a memorial. Just as the uh, composition of commonplace books in early modern Europe catered to diverse intellectual and literary needs of each owner, the Korean manuscript books put together whatever contents that attracted the owner uh, at the cost of coherence of the final product. This particular book is the compilation of transcribed circulars that provincial Confucian scholars passed around for their collective political activism. This book shows the affordance of printed books in the actual sense of book usage. As you see on the right image, the very first page reveals an interesting superposition of a piece of handwritten note upon the printed page. Once you turn the first page, the traces of printed pages are suddenly gone, and you are entering the realm of manuscripts as you see on the left image. As you flip through this book, you will find that the printed pages and the manuscript pages alternate from the beginning to the end. This case exemplifies one way the individual readers repurposed and tailored printed books for the production of their own manuscript books. For this purpose, the printed book uh, should be partially destroyed. In principle, all pre-modern East, uh, East Asian books are folios. One sheet of paper were rubbed on either a woodblock or a typeset, which consists of two pages. Instead of printing contents on both sides of paper, only one side contained text due to the sheerness of the paper. Then, it was folded back so that the printed side faces outside. The loose ends of these folded pages are tied together so the folded edges look out on readers. In this particular case, the owner cut these folded edges open so that he could access and use the blank space that was folded inside. The library catalog shows that the manuscript contents were written in 1807, but the printed contents were actually the Chinese almanac of 1806, which the cataloger never included as part of bibliographic information. We could assume that the owner repurposed the almanac after its function became obsolete. Some manuscript books even put the very function of books in question. I examined this particular book to find more examples of palindromic poems. Unlike the title that I found in the library catalog, The Palindromes Interwoven on Brocades, 
The cover page included another title, the comprehensive consideration of various standards, along with some doodles. Interestingly enough, the book meticulously elaborates on the confusion ritual standards and does not include any palindromes. What I found even more interesting is its page layout. As you see, some parts of these densely written uh, pages are difficult to read, if not impossible, uh, due to the ink smudged from the text written on the back of the pages. If you turn the page, you will find the Korean translation truncated from the literary Chinese contents. There were more extreme pages where multiple texts were written over one another, which I did not even consider worth taking photos back in 2016. The owners of these manuscript books did not document why they ended up creating this kind of illegible text. Notably, some contemporary calligraphic artworks produced in East Asia generate the abstraction through writing text over text whose motivations might provide some hints about the possible values of unreadable text. This particular work is titled Writing the Orchid Pavilion Preface 1,000 Times. This process-driven work exemplifies Chiu interest in the performative aspect of calligraphy, particularly the pedagogical method of repeatedly copying a model until its brush movements become second nature. The Orchid Pavilion Preface, written by the 4th century Chinese patriarch of calligraphy, Wang Shizhi, has long been revered as the unsurpassed model of cursive writing. Repeatedly writing over his freehand interpretation of the original, Chiu turns the paper into a saturated black field. By focusing on the process of writing rather than its literary contents, Chiu asserts that the ultimate goal of calligraphic practice is a form of written meditation. A similar emphasis on the process of writing at the expense of textual values constituted Zhang Huan's performance titled Family Tree. One day in 2001, Zhang took three calligraphers to a local park in Shanghai. Over the next few hours, in a painstaking process recorded in the photographs shown in the slide, they took turns to write on Zhang's face and neck. Their delicate characters, denoting family relations, the classical elements excerpted from Chinese classical literature, gradually accumulated until the artist's skin was totally black. His features were obscured by a pall of ink. As Zhang's face slowly disappears beneath the blackness, you come to feel the elaborate web of social and cultural norms smothering any sense of the individual self. Both performances of calligraphy alluded that alluded that the calligraphic tradition in East Asia comprised the process of embodying cultural values and social norms. The same logic is applicable uh, to the culture of Confucian scholarship in pre-20th century Korea. Due to the veneration of strenuous learning process, mastering Confucian classics involved pain, painstaking process of repeated reading aloud and writing to the extent that the learners fully memorized their content. In this process, the pra uh, practice of writing aimed not simply to produce text to be read, but to attach textual meanings to the body of the learners. In the level of embodiment of text, the repeated process superseded their legibility. This pedagogical approach still operates to some extent in the education of classical Chinese in Korea. I learned classical Chinese from the old gentleman on the left image for two years before coming to this country for my graduate studies. During the three-hour classes, my teacher would read aloud uh, the Confucian classics first, and then students read them alone. There was no grammatical or semantic explanations, and students would be kicked out if they had any questions. 
<laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, he always referred to his own teacher, Kim Hwang, one of the last Confucians of Korea, who you see on the right image in talking, in talking about how to learn classical Chinese. Read 100 times and write 100 times. In this repeated process of reading and writing, the scholars would not mind to write text over text as the final results were not for reading, but part of embodying knowledge. Massive writings in this context represent the diligent bodily movements of learners while they, uh, while they did, uh, did not have to read as their bodies remembered them. Thank you. In the Bodleian Library at Oxford University, there is a copy of the 13th century Central Asian medical scholar Najibuddin Samarkandi's medical encyclopedia, Al Asbab wal Alamat, or The Causes and the Symptoms. An Arabic work of the medieval Islamic world, this text borrows heavily from the canon of Arabic medical texts, synthesizing the information from these sources in one handy single volume work. While its colophon suggests it was copied in Baghdad in the 14th century, and the large circular seal placed to the right of that information indicates royal ownership by the Mughal Emperor Akbar, it has recently been discovered that both these notations speak to practices of forgery. Emily Savage Smith, in her catalog of Arabic medical manuscripts at the Bodleian, notes that the paper is of Indian extraction, likely from the 16th or 17th centuries. And that seal of the Emperor Akbar it has a twin in the British Museum, which dates from the 19th century, and was used by the British to add value to manuscripts by claiming that they came from the Mughal Library. These paratextual clues cast into doubt the provenance of the manuscript. But one notation, seen here on the right, um, that does bring it back to its more likely Indian origins is an ownership note written before the text begins, which explains in Arabic at the beginning of the month of Safar in the Hijrian or Islamic year 1274, which is around the end of September 1857, this medical encyclopedia was gifted to a man named Abu Fazl Muhammad Ashraf Ali al Nafis al Mutatabib al Badayuni. The reason for the gifting was ostensibly to give this man an introduction to a medical formulary of remedies written by the same author, Asamakandi. Named as al Mutatabib, a practitioner of medicine still learning his craft, Abul Fazl would have read the work to gain further insights into theoretical and diagnostic medical knowledge. And his ownership stamps, which unfortunately I don't have here, but they're pretty small, about this big, maybe an inch square, um, placed at the beginning of the text and on the colophon page corroborate this claim to ownership. Handwritten notes that such as those of ownership are just one of the many types of marginalia found throughout the paratexts of the Indian Asbab tradition, and they represent the reception of this particular textual tradition. Through notes such as these, we can further understand this medical tradition's reach, the ways in which it was studied, and its practical developments over time. For the sake of this 15-minute timing, I will be focusing on medical education and practice as represented by the marginalia. But know that we can also study social hierarchies, economic changes, and of course book history by looking at the ownership notes and colophone information as well as the marginalia of these manuscripts. So let's take a step back for a second and understand where this tradition is coming from. Yunani Thib, or Greek medicine, 
is a medical tradition based on Hippocratic medical theory, as synthesized through the works of the later Greek physician Galen of Pergamon, to present humoral theory as the foundation of medicine. So very quickly, that's the four humors, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile, working in harmony to ensure equilibrium and health. Simply put, when one humor is out of order, ill health will occur. Arabic translations of these works through the intermediary of Syriac flourished beginning in the 9th century, most famously in Baghdad, and the subsequent Arabic and Persian medical texts that were written building upon those Greek foundations became important sources themselves for Yunani medicine. The most famous Arabic medical work to come out of this efflorescence was Ibn Sina's Al-Kanun Fitib, or The Canon of Medicine. This five-volume medical encyclopedia was translated into Latin in the 12th century, a little over 100 years after the death of its author, and is referred to in the Latin tradition as Avicenna, so you might recognize that name. While such Arabic medical works would influence medieval medical education and practice in Europe, it is in India where the canon took hold as one of the foundational sources of a medical tradition still practiced today, called simply Thib. Receiving patronage from the Muslim rulers in South Asia with the Delhi sultans and Mughal emperors as their major supporters, scholars of Thib, as it was called in India until the late 18th century, produced Persian and Arabic commentaries and new original medical material in an efflorescence of knowledge production, study, and medical practice. It was through this system of patronage and support that the Asbab tradition was officially received in Mughal India. Starting with its first Indian commentary, and the only one written in <coughs> Persian, and it's on the right, Arzan used to be Akbar, Tibi Akbar, or Akbar's in medicine, named after its author, Muhammad Akbar Arzani, was dedicated to the Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb in the year 1700. It was a translation of the first Arabic commentary on the Asbab, written by the Central Asian scholar Nafis ibn Ibad al-Kirmani around 1424, and it sparked an intense Indian commentary tradition on this medical encyclopedia for at least another century. Arzani's ability to translate Arabic medical works and make them more accessible to the Persian reading elite of the Mughal world brought the Asbab tradition to the forefront of Dibbi study. What is intriguing about the six Indian commentaries that followed is that they were all written in Arabic and not in Persian. This linguistic preference can be seen both in the curriculum of Thib and in the ways in which students and readers interacted with the Asbab tradition. And it is through the marginalia, that handwriting in the margins, that we can begin to reconstruct such things. And I normally add a chart where I show you all the manuscripts that I consulted when I was in India. Suffice it to say, there are 124 of them that I found, and so now you will understand why I'm giving you other numbers. Um, so let's first take a look at what I call the citational marginalia. A majority of the marginal notations in the manuscripts of the Indian Asbab tradition, these notations cite the works and names of medical scholars in an effort to engage with the information found in the text. With this in mind, their very citations give us a window into Tibi medical education during the colonial and Mughal periods before that. Of the marginalia I have been working with, the references and names of the many citational notations can be split into seven categories based on the group or period to which the reference belongs. While the miscellaneous group is a mix of obscure references to contemporary practitioners and general citations without names, the other six categories define Thib in terms of textual usage and study. These categories, as you can see, are listed here, and there are a total of 480 references in the citational marginalia that I have noted, with some notations often citing more than one person or text. This table notes the frequency with which readers of the Indian Asbab-related manuscripts made these references, 
In the interest of time, the paper will briefly explore the citations of the medieval period due to this category's status as the group with the most frequent notations. Moving right along to actual handwriting. The medieval period is defined by scholars who built upon the medical knowledge transferred through translation in their own original texts on Thib. This group of references is the largest among the citational marginalia with 280 citations making up approximately 58% of the references under consideration. While 35 scholars and their works from this period are cited in the margins, a few clearly surpass the others in reference numbers and one in particular is very well referenced. Considered the father of South Asian Thib due to the foundational importance of his Arabic canon of medicine, Ibn Sina is unsurprisingly the most commonly cited scholar in the marginalia. The 70 references to him and his works in the margins constitute approximately one quarter of all the medieval citational notations. His canon is mentioned a total of 16 times, with three of those citations not written in conjunction with his name. This lack of cited author implies a knowledge of Ibn Sina that is so ingrained in readers of Thib that his name is not required. And other lesser known treatises of his, such as those on colic and cardiac remedies, are also noted in the marginalia, speaking to the widespread readership, knowledge, and foundational nature of Ibn Sina the Thib in India more generally. The overwhelming ubiquity of the medieval references citing Arabic writing scholars represents the importance of authors who produced Arabic Thibi sources to those who were reading the manuscripts of the Indian Asbab tradition itself. It was these sources that students of Thib were working with, and the medical knowledge written down in these marginal notations paints a picture of the Thibi curriculum. The overwhelming use of Arabic materials, as cited in the margins, further points towards the linguistic foundations of Thibi education, and it is to the Arabic medium of these marginalia that I will now turn. Arabic and Persian are the languages in which readers engaged with the Thibi materials. For the most part, we can talk about that later, if you would like. Sima Alavi, the author of Islam and Healing, Loss and Recovery of an Indo-Muslim Medical Tradition, contends that as the Mughal Empire began to decline in the late 18th century, Persian became more accessible to elites outside of the Mughal centers and was represented by its most literary affiliate, most by its literary affiliations, while Arabic became a doctrinal language. Arabic schools were fewer and had limited students compared to their Persian counterparts, which proliferated. And while Persian was associated with etiquette and high culture, Arabic became the predominant vehicle of science and medicine in 19th century India. The table here, up on the left, indicates the languages of the margins in relation to the languages of the texts themselves. The languages of the marginalia do attest to all of these assertions, but the idea that Arabic did not seriously begin to take hold as a language of medicine until the late 18th century is up for debate. Certainly, the marginalia in the Indian Asbab tradition show an overall trend toward the use of Arabic to interact with the materials as opposed to Persian, with 76% of the Arabic marginalia written in Arabic Asbab-related manuscripts. Much of this comes down to the languages of the scholars and sources cited in the margins as noted above, which are mainly in Arabic, demonstrating a strong preference for that kind of medical source material in India, and the use of the Arabic language to interact with the texts. But the manuscripts under consideration are not just from the 19th century. Even before the Mughal Empire's decline was fully in motion, Arabic was used by readers of Thib. Responding to a Persian text, the 14 Arabic marginalia found in three 18th century, mostly early to mid 18th century copies of the Persian work Thibi Akbar, demonstrate the use of Arabic by readers who were at least bilingual in their languages of Thibi study. This comfort in writing in Arabic also extended to reading in the language. 
two copies of a Samarkandi's Asbab, one of his medical formulae, which went along with that encyclopedia, and nine manuscripts of the 15th century commentary by Al-Kirmani, all produced in the 16th and 17th centuries in India, contain a total of 70 citational marginalia written in Arabic. These Arabic notations and Arabic sources dating from much earlier than the, the decline of the Mughal Empire denote a frequent use of the language for both reading and writing about medicine far before Alavi's suggested period of Arabic's rise as a language of science. Arabic as a language of medicine, reception, and interaction is quite evident in the Indian manuscripts of the Asbab tradition. While six out of the seven Indian commentaries were written in the language, so too were a majority of the marginal notations. And most of the citations of these marginalia refer to sources also written in Arabic, reflecting the linguistic foundations of South Asian Thibi education. And this preference for Arabic demonstrates its important role in scientific and medical inquiry throughout the early modern period in India. While the citational marginalia speak to the ways in which readers of Thib and the Asbab tradition engaged with its textual foundations, it is what I call the citation-less marginalia that focus on elements of medical practice. And they do so with a particular appreciation for specifically Indian medical knowledge. These marginalia cited no one, but often gave suggestions and recommendations for more effective treatments and remedies that had Indian origins. So they help us to answer questions like what happens with specifically Indian substances as the Thib of Ibn Sina and the Samarkandi adapts to its South Asian environment. The example I give here is a kind of fruit called myrobalan. The first Mughal emperor Babur encountered this fruit as noted in his memoirs when he came to India on his invasions in the early 16th century. Belonging to the genus Terminalia, there are multiple types of myrobalan or halilaj in Arabic and Persian used in medicine. Prior to Thib's arrival in South Asia, myrobalan was conspicuously absent from Greek medical treatises such as those of Galen and Dioscorides. It was commonly cited, however, in Thibi treatments due to its status as a major medical commodity of medieval Indian Ocean trade. Found in Ibn Sina's canon in its yellow and black varieties, myrobalan is said to treat leprosy, ailments of the eye, and gastrointestinal issues, among other things. And following in Ibn Sina's footsteps, Asamarkandi's own texts cite mostly black or yellow myrobalan to treat such illnesses. Given the detailed history of the use of myrobalan in Thibi pharmacology, how then do the marginalia of the Asbab commentary tradition in South Asia deal with myrobalan as a local drug? Indian copies of the works of the Asbab tradition contain marginal notations with detailed remedies said to cure a variety of ailments, and myrobalan features prominently in these notations. Prior to the beginning of its text, one mid-16th century copy of an asbab seen here, and this is actually the title page, so it doesn't have the actual text here. There are all sorts of marginalia just written around the title. Um, lists the ingredients necessary for treating vapors related to fever. The list recommends nine ingredients for the remedy, four of which are said to hail from the myrobalan family. The Persian notation suggests kabali, amlaj, black, and balearic myrobalan, kabali meaning from kabul all in measurements of 10 dirhams. While the first and third myrobalan types are related to each other, the second variety, emblic myrobalan, or phylanthus emblica, does not technically belong to the Terminalia genus. More myrobalan adjacent, this fruit is also called, in English, Indian gooseberry, known as amla in Hindi. All four varieties, therefore, are Indian in origin. Coming to the Indian commentaries, which rely on Kirmani's shark as intermediary, that first commentary that was written in the 15th century, 
The addition of my Roblin is also quite apparent. An undated copy of Sharif Khan's Al-Fawaid Sharifiyah, which is a gloss on Al-Kirmani's commentary to the Asbab, contains a notation that gives a warning in response to information found in the text. Reacting to the section on fevered headache, in the, sorry, yes, the marginal note cautions future readers against using too much myroblin for fever, warning that an overuse of the substance is actually dangerous, as it can narrow the passageways, restricting blood flow, and worsen the patient's condition. The notation writer's warning against myroblin overusage takes into account his own local knowledge about the fruit, something the sources in the Asbab tradition had thus far failed to address. The note was likely written based on the reader's own medical experience, giving a weight of practical authority to the notation. For the most part, myroblin usage tends to increase as Thibi pharmacology finds its home in India. A knowledge about that usage becomes more refined and detailed, as noted in the marginalia. This example and the treatments prescribed in the later Asbab tradition show a stronger affinity for the use of Indian drugs, a direct response to the Indian environment in which the Asbab tradition and Thib more generally settled, adapted, and flourished. Thus, this journey through the handwriting of the Indian Asbab tradition's margins has shown us how Indian Thib was studied and the ways its pharmacology was practiced. It is therefore evident that through a study of the marginalia and other paratextual notations, we can further reconstruct the lives of manuscripts, their traditions, and their surrounding contexts. Thank you. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you everybody for uh, what promises to be a really fun couple days of conversation. So um, uh, let's start. So, um, so my talk today um, is going to share some uh, very preliminary um, research into uh, what I've been finding is the presence of African American laborers on the periphery of the early United States book trade. Uh, roughly from the moment of con the constitu constitutional ratification around 1788 through the first decade of the 19th century. Uh, and so uh, for, for context, so the study of early black print cultures has benefited from a lot of um, really interesting work um, being done. Uh, most notably, uh, there's a collection called Early African American Print Culture by uh, Jordan Stein and Lyra Cohen that came out in 2012. Uh, uh, and there are many other people that are working in this, including people in this room. Um, but rather than uh, recovering forgotten black writers, readers, or printers, or networks of publication, uh, I want to ask a different set of questions to understand the connection between print and racialization in the early United States. And so by focusing on the uh, wider sphere of the book trade, I want to see what kind of race relations happen in the vicinity of book production and consumption. So the two questions that I want to ask today or try to answer are, is there a black presence in the mundane life of distributing books as opposed to writing, printing, or reading them? And how did African Americans contribute to the various peripheral activities that support a printing operation or bookstore? Um, uh, so uh, this is from a larger project about um, my, 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 my monograph on the early American book trade, uh, which tries to reimagine the history of the book Early America by focusing on the networks of persons and things that were comprised of business that was full of a lot of failures and bankruptcies and financial catastrophes. Um, so more than just printers, the early American book trade was full of various agents who did a variety of jobs that included things like importation, distribution, paper making, and as, as you'll see today, paper work. So for today, I want to widen the bookstores network to include a variety of black men and women. Um, actually, um, didn't have time to include the women that I found in my research. Um, but the, today, we'll focus on men who did valuable work and were often exploited. 
Uh, and I want to bring these ex examples to your attention because I've found that manuscript evidence has been the only way to see this history of labor. Specifically, the paperwork compared, uh, contained in publishers' archives shows traces of black lives that have so far gone largely unnoticed. Uh, and this kind of paperwork would include things like receipts, ledgers, and indenture forms. The bureaucratic work of keeping records and managing the bottom line, which is always a necessity in a, in a trade where bankruptcy or failure were normal outcomes, has the effect of preserving the, tr the traces of black laborers who are at times enslaved, indentured, or somewhat free. So um, engravings like the one seen here are part of an extensive print culture surrounding the period of constitutional ratification. And they've been examined by historians like Eric Slaughter and David Wallstreicher as vehicles of federal feeling or the state as a work of art, or architectural images combined with poetry to perpetuate nation building. Printers and newspaper editors were therefore instrumental in projecting the nation as, as a, an accomplished fact. Um, this work of legitimation was accompanied by parades, which were held in city streets, city streets that turned the newly ratified, ratified Constitution into a kind of Republican spectacle. And so on uh, July 4th, 1788, Philadelphia held the Grand Federal Procession, which is a public ritual that celebrated the new government with roughly 5,000 participants and well over 15,000 spectators. As Laura Regal has argued, uh, has argued, Philadelphia's federal parade celebrated the citizen worker uh, while also producing or manufacturing consenting citizen subjects through the very activity of parading. The parade was widely reported in newspapers and magazines, but next I want to show that a turn to paperwork can reveal another dimension. So seen here are records from the Philadelphia printer William Young, who kept track of the expenses for the printer's division of the Grand Federal Procession. As is well known, the Federal Procession was divided into a series of floats, kind of like an 18th century mummer's show, but with the added touch of dividing workers according to their specific trades. There was a specific section for butchers as well as shipbuilders, bricklayers, hatters, and so on. 17 of the 45 trades used horse-drawn stages to showcase the patriotism of their specific, specific work. And so William Young, whose papers you see, see here, helped organize what was known as the printer's, bookbinder's, and stationer's carriage. And the poet, Francis Hopkinson, described the printer's float in the following terms, quote, it was a stage nine feet square drawn by four horses up on the stage. The federal printing press complete with cases and other, impl other implements of the business furnished by 10 printing offices. Men at work upon the stage in the different branches of the profession. Mr. Durant in the character of Mercury in a white dress ornamented with, with red ribbons and having real wings affixed to his head and feet and a garland of flowers about his temples. During the procession, the pressmen were at work and struck off and distributed amongst the people many copies of an ode composed for the occasion. And that was Hopkinson. So the book, the book trade float was a theatrical affair, complete with men in costume tossing poetical broadsides into the crowd. And Hopkinson is, is careful to point out that the mobile printing done on the carriage utilized the combined resources of 10 different Philadelphia businesses a fitting emblem of the book trade's collective investment in federal feeling. But to me, this anecdote reads differently when we consider a detail which uh, you see here from the records with the blue arrow, uh, which is a list of expenses that Young kept for the float that included a charge of seven shillings, six pence for the labor of two Negroes. Were they present in the scene just described by Hopkinson, perhaps manning the horses to pull the carriage? I actually can't tell from the records what exact work these men performed, but despite the ambiguity, Young's paperwork makes clear their laboring presence. 
By extension, I want to contend, however spec speculatively, that the two men are constitutive of the staging of the nation's structural connection with printing and publishing. Such probable evidence for enslaved labor is significant in a few other respects. First, we see here an example of how manuscript records, not just correspondence, but receipts and other forms of record keeping, reveal a more capacious network within the trade that includes minoritized subjects. And secondly, relatedly, such handwritten documentation brings to light the lives of African Americans working in the vicinity of the book trade and not in the printing office itself. And so, of course, one could be illiterate and still deliver a wagon of books. So, um, We'll come back to this in a second. Um, so I want to start. I start with this example because it establishes a tight link between race, the new nation, and the book trade, with print acting not just as a medium for communication, but also as a space where printers and other tradesmen interact with the marginalized, the obscure, and the illiterate. But given our conference theme, I want to be sure not just to look through the record, right, but also to look at the handwriting itself, and to see paperwork as a space where power gets asserted or concealed. Paperwork's handwriting, in other words, brings together the bibliographical analysis of publishing with the rhetorical dimensions of accounting practices, which of course never simply describe a pre-existing objective reality. So we'll look at, at some blank forms. So blank forms, which include things like pre-printed contracts, oaths, pledges, and indentures, have always been important for the book trade since at least the 16th century. These documents exist precisely so that they will be filled in by hand, as Peter Stallygrass and others have observed. And the formulaic language and the empty space between the preprinted words together enable a variety of social roles, making them a kind of material equivalent of the performative speech acts once discussed by J.L. Austin. In recent scholarship, there's been a turn in paperwork's history to thinking of the blank as a space of inscription that registers, preserves, and in some measure produces the position of signer or witness or debtor, lender, buyer, seller, servant, or master. Survival rates of blank forms are notoriously low in special collections libraries and are infrequently cataloged at the individual item level. And bibliographers like Keith Maslin have argued that their scarcity have, are actually a proof of their ubiquity in history. The fact that blanks from the hand press era were not regularly saved, in other words, suggests that they were used and discarded making them print, print ephemera in the purest sense. So seen here is a rather typical blank form, an indenture paper <coughs> belonging to a New York printer from the late 18th century, which dates just a few years after the federal procession that I was discussing earlier. So Samuel Campbell, the printer in question, takes as, a, as his apprentice a 15-year-old boy named Alexander McLeod, who will learn, as we're told on the form, the art of bookbinding. Everything here is very typical, from the fancy dis display font that recalls the days of manuscript indentures to the seals and the signed witnesses. But note the tiny alteration uh, that you see in the middle where the promise to supply apparel is struck out by hand. And such deletions are also, of course, not uncommon. But let's, I want to show another one of Campbell's blanks that shows how this kind of alteration works with a non-white servant. So in many ways, uh, this presentation got its start when I came across this particular indenture at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. And the, for me, the contrast, uh, the, the, the importance is the contrast between this document and the previous indenture that we just looked at. Uh, because this dramatizes for me the role of paperwork in perpetuating racial inequality in the early US book trade. Since here we see an indenture form belonging to the same businessman, namely Sam, Samuel Campbell, the printer, but this time not with, with a young white boy, but instead with a man named Charles, a Negro man of about 38 years. 
Earlier we saw a single manuscript deletion to Alexander's contract where we took out the, the responsibility to supply clothing. But you see here, Charles, Charles's form has nine lines of text stricken out. Most notably, every reference to apprenticeship has been replaced with the explicit language that Charles would be Campbell's servant. And the question, of course, I ask, is this slavery by another name? It certainly is unfree labor, but one, one that differs from, from the white boy who will at least be trained in a kind of art of bookbinding. Comparing the indentures, we see racialization, this is what I want to contend, at work in the kind of hierarchical ordering and manipulation of the forms themselves. Campbell's alterations even re reach a level of, of absurdity in this form in, in the need to differentiate apprentice status, apprentice status from black servitude. And so we get this kind of circular language in the top, which I'll read to you, where Charles will quote, put himself servant to Samuel Campbell to serve him after, after the manner of a servant. <laughs> uh, Matthew Brown uh, has written about blank forms in an early American printer, arguing that indentures and similar documents should be studied for the implicit tension of choice and constraint entailed in the ritual of pledging one's freedom to the rule of another. Although Brown, uh, in an article, a recent article in American Literary History, neglects to consider blanks and indentures in terms of race and slavery. One detail on this slide that is worth considering that Brown has really helped me to understand is the filing practice of paperwork that involves folding and docketing a contract. Single sheet forms, after all, were rarely stored flat after signing and sealing. Instead, they were folded into a rectangular shape with a portion of the verso or back of the sheet facing outwards, just like you see on the lower right of the slide. And so in this, in this sense, Charles himself, who we're discussing, was folded and docketed in this way reduced to a rectangular piece of paper, an indenture that was not an indenture, with it simply a name and a date. This, to me, is an example of the double meaning of the contract, not just a legal agreement, but also a kind of digestive reference system. We know that an indenture refers etymologically to the teeth of early modern contracts, i.e. the serrated pattern cut between two matching copies that verified authenticity in case of a dispute. But Matt Brown points out that docketing also itself has a kind of resonant verbal history from dock, the Middle English verb for cutting away the fleshy part of an animal's tail. The bureaucratic docket, in other words, is a practice of abbreviation that digests all of the relevant information for quick reference. But if Charles's paperwork has been docketed in the filing process, then perhaps what's been cut away or docked is his own free will. On the outside that we see on the right, the verse of the sheet, the folded piece of paper pretends to look like a regular apprentice paper. But once unfolded, the heavily annotated and struck through agreement puts forward servitude as a kind of legal cover for what has to be enslaved by another name. And so uh, maybe, I'm hoping maybe in the Q&A or, or, or later on, um, uh, maybe the early modernists in the room or some of these scholars who work on, on slavery and uh, African American history can help me think about these kinds of documents. Um, but because to me, looking at this stuff helps put uh, uh, put slavery in conversation with paperwork and um, those kinds of issues. Um, uh, uh, and he, I want to show a few more examples, but I just want to note in passing that also in Campbell's papers is a real uh, bill of sale for an enslaved man dated just a few years after uh, he acquired uh, Charles as his servant. And we also know that uh, uh, Campbell uh, had aspirations to be a gentleman. He owned a, he owned a paper mill uh, in addition to his shop. And amongst his papers, I found this undated map or plan for his, for his estate, which includes uh, 
a space for, uh, for his black servants to live, uh, which you see marked with the blue arrows. So we're moving on to my last uh, example. So um, William Young and Samuel Campbell could each be characterized as kind of medium-sized fish in the ecology of the early US book trade. Uh, because they both you know, owned, owned printing shops, bookstores, and invested in mills. Uh, they also engaged in subscription publishing, which is a kind of distribution of books on an installment plan to customers. Many subscription publications required a tight schedule of delivery, especially for multi-volume editions, and, and consequently lots of delivery men were needed to get the books to the readers. And so here, um, this is my other example that I'm looking at is, um, uh, evidence of an African-American man who seems to have played some role in subscription delivery of some kind. Um, just as interestingly, the man in question was named Samuel Johnson, and he knew one of the most famous booksellers of all time, Mason Locke Weems, who's best known as the author of the George Washington biography, the one that gave us the myth about the cherry tree and the little boy that couldn't lie. For most of his career, Parson Weems was a traveling bookseller who helped publishers like Matthew Carey sell books in the South and in the Western territories. Uh, James Green from the Library Company calls Weems the most successful book marketer of the early republic, and other historians have seen Weems as instrumental in legitimizing slavery in his writing. I don't have time to go into his writing, but I want to uh, show you what I've learned about Samuel Johnson. Uh, uh, he's also known as Poor Sam. Uh, he was uh, owned by the Weems family, and Weems himself claims to have freed him, as you see here on, on the top left in a letter to Matthew Carey from 1797. And so the images on the slide give us a, a decade of odd jobs that Samuel Johnson undertook for at least four printers and publishers in Philadelphia. Um, we know that he was hanging around because Weems writes to Carey and says, can you find him for me? On the bottom right, we have a receipt uh, where Johnson was paid about $60 for work with a publisher named C.P. Wayne. And I know that this was for a subscription publication because um, I've done a lot of research on, on Wayne and this, this is what Wayne was publishing at the time. Um, on the top right, you see $20 paid to Johnson uh, from Weems through Matthew Carey in 1806. This means that Johnson was doing some kind of work for Weems in Philadelphia, probably part packing up cartloads of books to be shipped by wagon. And Carey was paying Johnson on Weems' account. Um, on the, and then on, finally on the bottom right, which I'll end with, uh, the female printer Lydia Bailey pays Johnson $1.50. This is the last evidence I found of him for paving the yard and alley outside of her establishment. So the most, this is the most menial kind of work to be sure, and it's possible with the declining payments across these receipts that we are, we are seeing Johnson inching closer to poverty. But of course, this is an account of what's missing, what I haven't found, um, or what doesn't survive. And so just to conclude, Samuel Johnson conducted a variety of jobs in the vicinity of the early national book trade, and it is only through the handwritten evidence of paperwork that lives like his can begin to be recovered or understood. Blank forms and paperwork have the potential, therefore, to tell us new things about the racialized subjects who worked in the vicinity of the early American book trade. Thank you. Thank you to the organizers, Matt and John, for including me in this conference at the last possible minute. Um, and in particular, um, for this panel, thanks to the Rare Book School and Andrew W. Mellon Society of Fellows in Critical Bibliography for sponsoring it. I'm thrilled to be here and to test out some ideas um, that I've been thinking about for a while and never had the opportunity to articulate. 
So this talk starts with the premise that is uh, pretty basic for this crowd, and that's as long as we want to be able to read the handwriting of the past, we need to know two things. First, how to write it in that historical moment, and second, we need to understand the socio-material conditions of handwriting in that same historical moment. Um, so I'll talk about that and then talk about ways of um, teaching and building communities around these premises. And I'm going to use the conditions uh, and technologies of writing in the early modern period uh, as an example because that's what I know. Um, so in the 15th through the 18th centuries, the primary materials for writing consisted of goose, goose quills plucked from the first few flight feathers of the left wing of a goose, uh, two paper made from a soupy mixture of broken down old linen rags that after it was formed into sheets was dipped into a vat of animal gelatin so that the writing ink wouldn't soak through it. And then the third main um, technology was writing ink. And writing ink was made of gall nuts, which are formed out of a reaction of an oak tree limb to a wasp depositing larvae on it green copperus, or iron sulfate, and gum arabic, which was a crystallized form of the sap from the acacia tree, which was imported into England from Northwest Africa and West Asia. And all of those ingredients for the ink would be ground up in, with a mortar and pestle and mixed into water or vinegar or wine, so the alcohol would prevent the ink from getting moldy, and it would be heated up and then left to sit for a while, and then strained. So many, writing, many recipe books from this period contain recipes for making writing ink. And I think that's my next slide. Yes. Uh, and, and it's important to look at them and the differences um, in the ink recipes and the, the vast quantities of ink that were being, being made in an, in, at a single moment. Uh, there are also many different sizes and qualities of writing paper in the period, each used for specific period <coughs> purposes. And this is from 1695, um, showing an auction of paper. And it lists over 500 items. This is just the top of it. So paper was a complicated thing in the period. Since there were no envelopes in this period, letter writers used a variety of techniques for creating beautiful and or ultra secure packets out of the sheets on which they wrote their letters, sealing them with red wax impressed with a seal matrix. Many people learned to write from printed writing manuals, and one could theoretically analyze the handwriting to determine whether people were taught by books or by writing masters, human beings, by looking at the fluidity of the joins between the letters in the cursive writing of the period, um, which was called secretary hand. Um, and then you also occasionally will see instances of direct emulation from a copybook in someone's hand. So they're totally dependent on the copybook for knowing how to write. Handwriting was a physically uh, arduous activity which could be derailed by any number of physical ailments or else by the, the logistical necess necessity of writing hurriedly because of a carrier who was about to leave. So you'll often see letters saying like, the carrier just turned up and dropped off some letters and he's about to leave, so I'm writing this in a rush. And you can see that the handwriting is written in a hurry. 
Sometimes the text itself reveals these issues, and sometimes the handwriting quality or the paper type silently communicates that something was not ideal in the, the circumstances of writing. Um, I like this letter because it's from the Earl of Shrewsbury to Bess of Hardwick, and he's having an amanuensis or scribe write on his behalf because of the pain stiffness in his hand, but because he's having someone else write the letter, he can't actually respond to the questions she asked him in her letter to him because of the confidential nature of them. Uh, so this is a very nice hand uh, of his scribe or secretary. And then this is his handwriting. Um, he's not complaining of pain <laughs> when he's writing this letter, but uh, I prefer that to, uh, <laughs> to this one. Handwriting took a lot of practice, starting with learning how to write the alphabet, which you see on the left, um, and then learning how to connect the letters together and repeating, repeating, repeating. So this is a, a pan, an example of a pangram sentence. Job, a righteous man of us, waxed poor quickly, written over 20 times in a row. It looks like one word at a time in a column or form, format, and then he gets more and more spread out as he gets to the bottom, so you can see he can't even get all the words. But that phrase contains all the letters of the early modern alphabet. For people with little experience operating a quill, they might only be able to leave a mark instead of a signature. And that's what happens here with Dorothy Ellery signing the bottom of the next uh, deposition in which she had been asked to describe an incident involving cavaliers and roundheads in her small town. Um, so that's from 1655. But you can see the real awkwardness and shakiness of that sort of hangman mark of hers or the scales of justice, maybe. I'm not sure what it is. Um, she clearly was not used to holding a quill. Some aristocratic women mastered the art of writing, but not the art of spelling or word division. And that's really borne out in this example, a letter from Elizabeth Cavendish from the 1570s to her mother, and in which she doesn't, doesn't uh, distinguish where words begin and end in the same way that we do today. So I humbly is spelled I-U-M-B-L-I as one word. It looks like jumbly. Um, and then this phrase here, so dangerous was the, and then that's, so dangerous was the way on horseback. But it's we on horse <laughs> as one word and then back. Sometimes people apologize for not having the right paper handy, showing their recognition that paper carried social signals that could offend the <coughs> recipient. Or they would complain about the poor quality of a paper. So this is a postscript to uh, a letter written on a small, not standard size piece of paper in which Thomas Doxey writes, I must crave pardon for writing in so bad paper, for I lost the key of my desk and can come to no other. So it looks like he's taken part of an address leaf you know, of a folded letter and reused that as a blank piece of paper to send his letter back to his master. And women in particular developed their own personal styles, creating special flourishes to their hands that went far above and beyond the textbook scripts offered in printed writing manuals. And so we have a recipe book on the left that is very nicely laid out, it's written the one on the left and an italic hand with 
bold descenders and descenders. Um, so this person is clearly taking care in writing out their recipes for syrup of violets and for humble pies. And then on the right, we have that exercise, an arithmet arithmetic exercise book that is also a calligraphic writing manual, a writing book um, by another woman, Sarah Cole, from the 1690s. And then here are some others. The one on the left, uh, you can see that some of the initial letters are inhabited in Constance Hall, her book of receipts, Anno Domini, 1672. And then on the right, um, I just wanted to point out this, this woman's extra details that she added to her hand. Um, so you can see her Ks have a special little curly Q right there. And then she does that in all of her Ks, not just um, the K in her last name, Skipwith. And here she's clearly meaning this letter, um, which is written to her cousin, uh, who they are secretly engaged. Um, so this is, this is a love letter, and it's not explicitly a love letter in the text, but it is in the way that the letter was folded. And then in this uh, postscript, she tells him, she sends him a little token. Um, <laughs> she writes, I have sent you a little box of marmalade to break your fast with all. And box and brick have that little special K of hers. So for me, um, or my simple point here is that handwriting is more than just words. It's a human activity impacted by a wide range of personal, cultural, and material factors. When we look at 400-year-old handwriting as scholars of the early modern period, we can't just grab and go, textually speaking. And I think that some historians do exactly this. They will um, pillage almost primary sources for the quote that they need to support their argument and then leave the manuscript as quickly as possible. And I sort of think of it like eating fast food in the car rather than sitting in the kitchen with the chef. So there's a time and place for both, but if you really want a deeper understanding of the text and if you really want to make new discoveries, you need to spend time with the material object and copy out more than just the words you're hoping to find. And I know you all espouse this view as well. And so for me, it's all about the words you weren't expecting to find when you're looking at a manuscript, rather than going in and like hoping you're going to find something that supports your argument. And it's, it's about looking for the incongruities between the words and the paper, or the words and the ways in which the letter was folded for sending, or the words and the way they are spelled, or the particular care in which they were written. We need whatever clues we can find to interpret this period, and we need the skills to notice when something related to the handwriting or the manuscript itself is unusual, even if the text doesn't expl explicitly declare that anything unusual is happening. So we need the eyes for seeing, seeing these hidden clues that would not have been hidden to contemporary audiences. So I've been teaching paleography, um, how to read and transcribe and contextualize old handwriting for about 15 years. And in my classes, this process, and some of you have been in these classes in various iterations of them, it involves learning to read and transcribe the unfamiliar letter forms, of course, but it also involves learning to read the substrate, <laughs> the layout, the size, the format of different genres of manuscripts, and the archival afterlife, such as the endorsements or the filing holes, or the way that the letter was folded and docketed uh, after it was received. 
we look at the changes in handwriting within a single document. Uh, we look at instances of ink failing or the quill <coughs> failing or the paper itself failing or not going according to plan. And we look at the seals and the bindings and other clues and indicators of what the writer does not write down but would have been recognized as an obvious um, subtext or countertext to contemporary readers. So I want my students to think of history not as a series of tidy texts in modern scholarly editions, but to peel away all the layers of mediation and intervention and subjective interpretation to see the primary source material in its full messiness and ambiguity and complexity. Um, so really in opposition to print norms. So engaging with the manuscript's messy complexity begins with reading it and transcribing it. And it begins with acknowledging unfamiliar letter forms, the creative spelling of the period, and the obsolete words, some of which don't even appear in the Oxford English Dictionary because they are so regional and time-specific. In our classes, we use a variety of techniques for learning to read. And really, students are learning to read all over again. They're having to form new synapses. It's a very strange experience. It's like being in a kindergarten classroom, listening to participants, sounding out words, reading words letter by letter, getting so lost in a word that they can't see the forest through the trees. We try lots of different ways to um, decode these manuscripts in secretary hands, such as reading in the round, where one person reads a line, while everyone else listens and certainly tries to read the line as well. We work in pairs so that students can help each other wade through a transcription and learn from each other. We read words backwards to avoid guessing because sometimes people will recognize the first few letters of a word and then just blurt out what they think it is and they're wrong. Uh, we correct each other, or we correct other people's transcriptions. We compare and argue over transcriptions if we have uh, disparity in interpretation. And I always tell them no two transcriptions, even by the most expert paleographer, are ever going to be exactly alike. Um, we also make crib sheets, which consist of copying out all the letter forms that a particular writer uses, and then using it as a guide for reading the text. We make glossaries of unfamiliar words and think about how we would gloss a text for a general audience or a scholarly audience. And we look up all the place names and the surnames. And we basically don't walk away from a manuscript until we've exhausted our ability to understand it, or at least we know where we need to go to further understand it. But one of the biggest aha moments for many students comes on the second day of class when we write with goose quills and so here I brought a, yep, I have a goose quill here, um, on rag paper. So we get rag paper from Tim Barrett's paper making facility at the University of Iowa. And we use ink made from an early modern recipe. So they practice the alphabet with these early modern-ish materials. They practice their names. And then they copy out a recipe for making ink, sort of like that ink recipe I showed in one of the earliest slides. And they're not transcribing it. They are copying it out in the same handwriting of the person who was writing it in the 17th century. And sometimes, since it's so early in the learning process, they don't even know exactly what they're transcribing. Like, they can't decode it. But they can trace it out. And this develops the muscle memory for how the letters are formed, which we would have talked about the previous day. 
and the series of strokes that you know, make the anatomy of each letter. But then something else happens. Um, they also magically develop empathy for and solidarity with <laughs> the creators of the manuscripts that we study. So instead of complaining about someone's messy or difficult handwriting, which they do always in the first session, they suddenly realize that there's a body behind the handwriting and how each act of writing takes place at a specific moment in a specific place on a specific piece of paper. And this all affects what they are reading and transcribing. The manuscripts are now alive to them in a way they weren't before. So this is what I think of as the slow reading movement reading the whole manuscript, text and substrate, top to tail. Understanding where our manuscripts come from, how they were created, who created them and why, so that we can better understand and learn from our handwritten legacy. So every movement needs a community to sustain and promote it. Right now, at the Folger, we actively engage and grow our transcription and slow reading communities through transcribathons, pedagogical partnerships, paleography classes. We have a bruise and brebigraph night that we sometimes host, which is a combination of beer and team transcription contests with prizes. Uh, we have a, a crowdsourcing site called Shakespeare's World. Uh, we have blog posts, a Twitter account, and we're always looking for new ways to <laughs> connect. And so I'll just end by talking about a few of these community building events. Um, here's Bruise and Brevi Grass at a local pub, which was uh, very curious about this activity that was happening <laughs> um, on the top floor of their bar. Um, our first transcribathon we held in 2014, and it was hosted by the Folger at University of Pennsylvania, and it went on for 12 hours, and there was a cake to celebrate it. Um, here is some signage for other transcribathons that we partnered um, with folks to host at their home institutions. Oh, and in fact, there's a transcribathon going on that's a Folger MPOP transcribathon um, with the Harry Ransom Center right, right now. So if you actually went to this website here, you could find out about it and contribute to a transcribathon that's happening right now. Um, so MPOP, Early Modern Poetry Online Project, and MROC, Early Modern Recipes Online Collective, are two groups of um, just transcription devotees who specialize in poetry and or recipes and have formed collectives to bring together people to transcribe together. Um, and they also teach using, the, they teach transcription as a pedagogical exercise. So these, we refer to them as uh, pedagogical partnerships, and we have them with a growing number of professors, and they include transcription in whatever class they're teaching um, that can have primary source material included in it. So by doing so, they transform their humanities classrooms into laboratories of active learning, introducing students to this new form of slow and close reading. And undergrads who have been exposed to manuscript transcription have learned to question and kind of get angry at modern editions of canonical works that they are assigned. They have recreated recipes from Renaissance recipe books, and they have formed their own undergraduate paleography societies at at least three 
uh, different universities. And one professor has said of using Dromeo, which is our transcription platform for doing these transcriptions, that Dromeo and Emo, Early Modern Manuscripts Online, have become my students' best and most consistent way to think through original sources. So transcribathons and pedagogical partnerships and brews and banter sessions rely on Dromeo, the transcription interface. And this is an environment that allows users to just come up with a username and transcribe and mark up manuscripts in a fairly intuitive way. But it's also a teaching tool in that it allows a teacher with access to the back end to view, share, compare, print out, and correct the transcriptions of multiple students simultaneously. So this is what a collation interface looks like where I've taken three people's transcriptions and layered them or collated them on top of each other with the differences in the transcriptions appearing in red. So in a classroom setting, you can look at this and say, like, oh, it looks like you know, one or two <coughs> people used uh, put an A instead of a U in the word pulver, or maybe it is an A, and then we debate. Rather than going through every single word, we look at the hot spots, and we try and come to consensus about what the word is before we move on. And then they can make corrections on the fly, and then we can hit refresh. And the goal is to get a text that um, is all black because it's collating perfectly. Heather, I am so sorry to interrupt you, but we're at less than 10 minutes Ooh. until we have to leave okay. for lunch. So I'm so sorry to cut you off. That's but fine. I think we need to move to a Q&A. So thank you for what you shared. Maybe we can get some more in a minute. Here. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks. Thanks, everyone.